Welcome to episode 473 of the CyberLaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, clients, friends, family, not even our pets, I'm afraid. Joining me on the News Roundup, Gus Hurwitz, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School and runs the Law and Economics program at the International Center for Law and Economics. Mark McCarthy, who teaches at Georgetown Law and does policy at the Brookings Institution, and David Chris, who founded Culper Partners and is a former Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Justice Department. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. I thought we would start with a UK story that has been five years in the making. Mark, the UK has finally passed the Online Safety Act. I guess we're still waiting for the Queen to, or the King to sign it, but it's done. And now it's all over but the weeping. Yeah, it awaits what the Brits charmingly call royal assent. But that should be forthcoming, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah, it's a major law for regulating online content parallel to the Digital Services Act in the European Union. And actually, some some elements might be usable in the United States. I think it gets right the idea of having a regulator make some of these key decisions on issues. It provides instructions to make these specific determinations based on a policy set by the legislator. But it's really the Ofcom, Office of Communications in the UK, that has got to make a lot of these calls. And they've been beefing up to hire hundreds of staff to implement and enforce this law. That's the other thing that the law gets right, it seems to me. They pass the cost of regulation onto the regulated industry. It's search firms, user-to-user services, and porn sites. And the company's going to get a notice from Ofcom saying, oh, you're in scope, here are your obligations, and here's your regulatory fee. It'll feel a little bit like a licensing regime, even if it's not explicitly set up to be that. And the third thing it gets right is it's a strong enforcement. Fines up to 10% of, of turnover if companies don't, don't comply. And I think, Stuart, as you mentioned, it's been chock full of controversies. The initial one was one about legal but harmful information. It initially required companies to take steps in connection with, it was government-defined speech, uh, material relating to suicide or self-injury or eating disorders or abuse or incitement of hatred toward protected classes. And that was supposedly purged from the bill late in 2022, but it actually remained in two places. One is there's an absolute ban on harmful material directed to children. And there's also a requirement for the companies to develop tools that adults can use to prevent their exposure to harmful material. Now, people who don't like this idea of it, so, so that people can basically opt out of certain kinds of conversations. Yeah, it's, it's basically the old idea of filters, mm-hmm. right? You, you just uh, put up your filter and you won't see any hate speech or racism and stuff like that. This may not be the best way to deal with online information disorder. I mean, it basically says, oh yeah, all that horrible stuff can flourish as long as you keep it away from kids and adults that don't want it. But, you know, we've seen from events like January 6th that, you know, you can't really protect yourself from the harmful effects of online information disorder by cultivating a kind of willful ignorance about it, putting your head in the sand and saying, I don't see it, it's not there, 
But, you know, Ofcom is given the role to figure out what to do, and it's given the job to give, provide some guidance on what material is harmful. And it can propose additional categories of harmful material, which I think have to be approved by Parliament. That seems to be a pretty, if you're going to take that approach, it seems to be a pretty sensible way to... Yeah, I completely disagree with you about the claim that, uh, oh, well, bad things are happening out there. The speech is producing something bad, and I'm going to be harmed by it, even if I can't see it. Just knowing people are saying things that I don't like yeah, I know. is just unacceptable to me. The, the downhill slope on that kind of a regime... Well, we've seen parts of it, and it's just it's just ugly. And that that's why they went that way and said, okay, choice is better than ban. So, we're, you know, that's why they, they did that. So that now, now you've got a regulator to figure out what's harmful and what and what's not, and then adults get to decide, and children don't have to see it. Speaking of children, there are all these requirements for special obligations in connection with children. So, who are the kids? We've got to have an age assurance mechanism to distinguish the kids from the rest of the world. Now, you might say, I'm not just not going to deal with kids. I'm going to keep the under 18 kids away from this stuff. But, but even this requires age assurance, right? Uh, you know, you've got to have age assurance for everybody. And this means what? Uh, biological age estimation, trusted third parties, government documents, who knows? And that's a challenge that's given to Ofcom too. They're told yeah. to balance a high level of age assurance against being respectful of privacy. And again, this isn't a bad use of regulatory expertise. My sense is that Ofcom uh, would be well advised to consult with the Information Commissioner's Office, the UK privacy regulator, and to get their input on doing this. And even after that kind of cons consultation, there's a question about who makes the final call. Is it the privacy regulator or the content regulator? Seems pretty clear as the content regulator, isn't it? I think it is, but can they adequately take privacy into account if they just sort of, you know, take the advice of the privacy regulator? Is that the best way to balance these kind of conflicting policy choices? Wouldn't it be better maybe to have a single administrative decision maker there rather than putting the decision in the hands of one side of the tension? I've always been puzzled by this one because I, I'm quite confident that the people who are advertising to me know my age, judging from the Depends ads that I get. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really, it's not a secret what your age is when you're on the internet. That's a way to do it. So there may be a way for you to check in quickly with some third party that already knows your age, right? I mean, maybe Amazon knows your age or social media knows your age. Maybe before you check in to a site that wants to have age assurance, you just say, ask Amazon. They know, right? Maybe that's one way to do it. We don't know. Ofcom will have to figure that out. And of course, the, la the last issue, which everyone has been talking about for the last several months, is encryption. So before we do encryption, I did want to say I, what's interesting about this is they have, with remarkably little pushback, adopted laws that are being litigated into the ground and basically set aside in numerous states, most recently, I think, California. And for a variety of First Amendment reasons, the courts have really not, plus, you know, I think bad lawyering on the part of the states, the courts have been really hostile to these things. But if the UK actually makes this work, I think those laws are going to have to get another look. I think you're right. I mean, the, the California age-appropriate law was stricken down. This is just a district court. We see what happens later on. 
But yeah, the courts have been hostile to this stuff. The age appropriate thing has been in, in place in the UK for, for four years now. And even though it's been there and had some good results, the district court in California said, not here. So I do think there may be a resistance to taking imported policies from other jurisdictions and treating them as models here. But we'll see. You may be right. If it's effective there, you know, it'll add some pressure to doing it here. Okay. Encryption. I will say it seems to me that given all of the hard issues that are resolved by this law, that to let three or four Silicon Valley companies hijack the debate about the statute was kind of remarkable. All anybody knows about this is that it's bad for end-to-end encryption. And there's just endless coverage of the end-to-end encryption issue as though this this were an encryption law. I've been struck by the fact that at the end of the day, privacy groups only succeed when they are bolstered by the money from Silicon Valley profit-making company. That may be right, but you know, I'm not sure the Silicon Valley companies who were threatening to leave have won this one. Oh no, they just got they got hosed. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I mean the law is passed. It says you know, Ofcom can require messaging services to use what they call accredited technology. Yeah. And, you know, identify the, the content that has to be removed. And, you know, I mean, Ofcom has to say, okay, it's necessary and proportionate and the technology has to be accredited. I think it's just feasible and proportionate. And I'm pretty sure from context that proportionate means proportionate to the size of the entity that's being regulated. So it's just got to be feasible. And then it's got to be accredited. And who does the accrediting? Ofcom. Ofcom is going to accredit this to itself. Yeah. The journalists who are taking comfort from the language that was inserted here are deluding themselves. I think you're right. And I mean, if, for example, I think something like client-side scanning is still a viable possibility. It's totally feasible. Apple has demonstrated that it's feasible. <laughs> they withdrew it, not because it wasn't feasible, but because of privacy criticism. And GCHQ wants it. And so I think that might be something that's in the cards. Uh, I should mention that the president of Signal, one of the people who's been making all this trouble about this and who said, yeah, if they do break encryption, she's leaving uh, the UK. She's also said she doesn't like client-side scanning. She thinks it's spyware. Oh, yeah. And even if the government has the authority to put this in place, not if they actually do it, but if they even have the authority to do that, that's a precedent for an authoritarian regime. But she did not leave. She said, we're going to leave if bad things happen. And she kept defining bad things away from what was going on. So now she has said, well, we, we, we don't love it, but we think it's a win. And they haven't done anything bad yet. So I'll, maybe I'll walk if I actually am asked to do this. I think she's waiting for Ofcom to do something and then she'll make up her mind what to do. It may be not that far in the future. I mean, the budding controversy with Meta, they want to introduce encryption in their messaging service by the end of the year. Now, Ofcom's not going to be ready by that time. And so it really is jawboning by Thuella Braverman, the UK Home Secretary, who says to Meta, don't you dare. And we'll see what's going to happen in that kind of confrontation. Yeah, I actually think they might be able to gin something up pretty quickly to stop Meta from doing this. Maybe, but I mean, WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegram already do it. So they'd have to put in place a comprehensive policy, not something that's jerry-rigged for, for Meta. And then they could put in a client-side scanning as an interim thing too. 
But I frankly don't think they'll be ready to. It's too quick. It could be. It could be. They got a victory here and they're going to try job owning for a while, is my guess. And I think they're going to be job owning Facebook to slow down. Yeah. And it's going to be hard not to slow down if you're being told, well, you can go forward and turn it into a foot race, but then we're just going to regulate badly. Yeah. Anyhow, there are lots of developments on this, but a lot of it got pushed off to the future and it's in the hands of the regulator now. Okay. All right, David, the Department of Homeland Security has produced a surprisingly good mandated, congressionally mandated report about single portals and how to harmonize cyber incident reporting. Yep. I thought it's just a report of things that should happen soon. It's not really uh, a clear <laughs> guide about what they're going to do, but it's a pretty good hint. Yeah. There's a... Um... There's a sort of a straight way to report on this, and then there's a snarky way, and I'll try to- Oh, go for snark. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mix them both. So first of all, just to set the context for it, I mean, everybody knows cyber incident reporting as a thing is just increasingly important, partly because cyber incidents, that is bad things happening in cyberspace, are on the rise to include ransomware and other attacks, and partly because the private sector has just way better visibility into these incidents than does your government. The intelligence community does not have an authority to really, you know, sort of look around in U.S. cyberspace freely. There are lots of limits, whereas a lot of private companies, you know, either see because they are the victims of attacks and they can see that or because they're hosts of platforms or others who are victims. And so they have really enhanced visibility. So it's very important both because the problem is severe and because the private sector can see what's going on in real time, or at least faster than the government can, that they report in to the government so that things can be done to spread the word or put up defenses. Anyway, that's the theory of the environment we're in now. And this has given rise to a thousand flowers blooming, or really at least 50 something separate requirements. A a couple like Circea, based in statute, but many based in just existing regulatory authority across the vast federal and at some at the state level to require these incidents to be reported. And the requirements vary, as you might expect. If one were reporting this in a good faith straight way, one might refer back to Louis Brandeis and the 50 laboratories of democracy and make an analogy to the hundreds of agencies and the 50 reporting requirements that they have produced. Or if one were like Stewart, one would say it's uh, throwing spaghetti up against the wall and I can't believe the bureaucratic state is so out of control. But in any event, we have now a bunch of different requirements imposed by different regulatory and legal authorities, all in the space of cyber incident reporting. And this report here from DHS recognizes and acknowledges that and says, you know, we got to try to streamline the thing and harmonize and deconflict it. And I remember months ago, I was doing some podcasts and discussions with cyber officials in various elements of the U.S. government. And I was saying, come on, guys, you know, there's been some pretty good reporting at that point. I think there were something like 30 something uh, separate reporting obligations. Who's going to straighten that out? And everybody was ducking and covering and nobody wanted to say they would own it. But here is DHS telling us that it's a real thing and that it's got to be deconflicted about, you know, what's the criteria for reporting? What are the triggers? What has to be reported? How quickly do you have to report it? There's a whole host of decisions and and questions have to be answered around what cyber incident reporting means. And so 
with some advice from some outsiders and, and I think a fairly careful look across the uh, ecosystem here, DHS has given us some guidance for how these regulations are going to be deconflicted. And so I go forward with a strong sense of hope and optimism, which I know you share, Stuart. And in the meantime, under that Circea statute, the uh, Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, uh, DHS will, I think, in a few months, be producing its own requirements. So anyway, people are thoughtfully grappling with this very difficult and extremely important issue. And so your tax dollars being put to good work, I think. Yeah, it's a good report written by somebody who's presenting the view from the sideline. They don't say... And we'll do it. We'll we'll just get these guys in shape. Right. We still have harmonization without a harmonizer. Roger that. Which is hard to see working. But the first step in solving any problem, if you want to call this a problem, is to acknowledge it. And here I think it's a pretty frank acknowledgement. And I, I do think Rob Silvers is excellent. And I do think this report is, is actually pretty well done. It's a good survey. Yes, it's good. And it was more or less on time. I, yeah. It's kind of surprising. DHS may be recovering from the period in which you were there, Stuart, you know, finally. So that's good. That could be. That could be. They should finish a few of the reports that I had on my desk when I left. Roger. So I just don't see how we actually get to harmonization without breaking a few fingers. The SEC is not going to say, oh, you're right. You're right. We should just stand down from our requirements and we'll follow the FDIC because they got it right and we were stupid. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be tougher. Yeah. I think that's right. They do propose some legislation and some of that legislation could mandate or authorize somebody to actually harmonize these. We'll see. Maybe. But that will set off antibodies among Republicans, at least. So I'm not sure in the business world generally. All right, let's uh, let's keep the snark going. <laughs> let's go to the next story, which is super fun. <laughs> this is fun. I labeled this conservative catfight because it features an op-ed that Michael Ellis, who's been on this podcast a lot, and I wrote another one about 702. If you're keeping score at home, this is like number four, in which I took on Bob Goodlatte and Matt Silver. Uh, Bob Goodlatte obviously was a congressman for many years and is now working on, as he did when he was in Congress, working on a kind of conservative libertarian reforms. And he wants to reform 702 as part of a coalition with Demand, Progress and the Brennan Center. So it's an unlikely bedfellow proposal. Boy, I'll say politics does make strange bedfellows. So for context on this one, right, so 702, the FISA Amendments Act provision that allows the government without a warrant to target for collection non-U.S. persons abroad, but also inevitably picks up both sides of their communications, including when they may be in touch with a U.S. person and or a person in the United States is up for its five-year renewal. There's a sunset that's built into that law, was built into that law when it was first enacted in 2008. And it's been renewed several times. And we're now on the, I guess, the uh, third-ish five-year cycle. And it's very controversial. It's going to be the most challenging, I think, of the uh, prior renewal cycles, more challenging than prior renewal cycles. The sort of pointiest issue right now is about whether and how the government and particularly the FBI working in a law enforcement context can query 
the big database of these communications targeting non-U.S. persons abroad, but, but involving some communications with U.S. persons or persons in the U.S. on the other side uh, that are held in giant databases. And when you query, you're sort of casting out your line with some kind of identifier and seeing what data in the database meets that identifier. It might be Stuart's name, might be his social security number, might be his phone number, whatever. And we're going to see if Stuart's been talking to any of the 702 targets who are non-US persons abroad. This is very controversial and there's a lot of effort to try to rein it in and possibly require a court order before a query can be done and so forth. So you have that sort of traditional civil liberties left group, as you said, Brennan Center and so forth. And they've got relatively well-developed policy prescriptions and they've been fighting this fight, you know, since the days of Pat Leahy and the Patriot Act. They have pretty clear sense of what they want. But what you have now in the new era is the sort of countervailing the, the corresponding group on the on the MAGA right or whatever you want to call it, the Stewart's people, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who are very suspicious of the intelligence community, you know, from the other side of the political spectrum. And they, too, are in some part very skeptical of this querying authority and wish to rein it in. So you have this politics makes a strange bedfellows moment. But then you have Stuart. Stuart here and with Michael have, as you say, written many, many pieces and been very thoughtful in saying, you know, hey, guys on the right wing MAGA faction, you really shouldn't be allying with the lefty civil liberties groups the way you are about querying. That is just tilting at windmills. What you really ought to be doing is using this. I think you said in a prior podcast, Stuart, basically using it like the budget authority to extract concessions that are much more meaningful to your constituents and yourselves that don't really bear directly on querying or even on FISA per se, but have to do with things like whether former intelligence officials can be subject to the Hatch Act or limited in the way they criticize government or make statements that are relevant to elections and so forth. So, Stuart, you can speak for yourself, but my sense is you've sort of said this is a bad alliance for that for that right wing side of the equation to get in with the left wing side. And instead, the right wing groups ought to be pursuing different reform, not linked to surveillance per se, but addressing their more fundamental concerns with the intelligence community. Yeah, I don't think I've said this publicly, but I've often thought it privately that these left-right coalitions usually involve the left turning the right wing into stoop labor for whatever their priority is. <laughs> they just dragoon them into it. And then the, the right provides most of the actual energy and work behind it. And this is, I think, an example of that. The left wing has never been really particularly impeded by a need to actually have a functioning national security apparatus so they can ask for whatever sounds good to them. But I think most people on the right still believe in defending the country and making sure that we have national security authorities that we need. So it's not. I see. So it is the responsible, good government, keep the FBI funded right wing being dragooned by the burn it all down nihilistic left that explains this. Thank you, Stuart. I now see the light. <laughs> no, there, there is definitely an appeal to people who feel, and in some cases with some justice, that the Trump administration was crippled from the start by misuse of national security authority. The wiretaps on Carter Page, no one has spoken up to defend that in years. No, and I went out and 
gave the FBI a good hard whack, which yeah. they certainly deserve yeah. for that, I yeah. will say. So I think the administration could get a lot of mileage out of having somebody apologize for that. I don't think that's ever happened, and it probably would be a good idea. The problems with the Carter Page FISA were problems of partisan at least blindness and maybe worse. And we're never going to solve the problem of unconscious partisan bias by relying on the FISA court to grant or deny access to the 702 database because they were among the worst offenders. They renewed this four times, the last two on the basis of applications that the government couldn't defend and actually had to withdraw. So, you know, if you're counting on the FISA court to police bias and partisan misuse of FISA, you're barking up the wrong tree. So our argument is, one, you're going to do a lot of harm to national security. Two, you're not going to present some of the things that you think you're preventing. You would be better off going straight at partisan misbehavior and picking up the most obvious examples of partisan misbehavior from the last five five to seven years and trying to prevent those. So, I mean, obviously, Stuart, you and I, you know, don't agree on many things. And that's part of the delight of, you know, being on this podcast. And I hope the audience likes it, too. Uh, But I will say I do think you have done very good work here in trying to sort of give voice and develop real policy prescriptions. Maybe they're good, maybe they're bad, but at least they're real policy prescriptions that are actionable to give voice to this sense that a lot of you know people in, in your group have that there's something wrong. Again, you and I disagree on a lot, but I do think finding a way to make a policy articulation that can be examined and critiqued and enacted if appropriate, that's a real service here. So I do appreciate what you've done to do that. Everything else you've done is terrible, and I want the record to reflect that. <laughs> That's right. And when you get back in, you'll indict me for it. I understand. <laughs> so anyway. That said, I, I actually think the fight over 702 is making a fair amount of progress on the right. The fact that Bob Goodlatte wrote two op-eds in the space of a week attacking Michael Ellis and me by name. You should be flattered. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think it, it suggests that maybe... Facing more resistance among his compatriots than he would like. And so I suspect that we're going to do okay getting a reasonable package of reforms and certainly renewal of 702 through big chunks of the Republican Party. I'm less sure that the administration has done all of the work it needs to do to bring the D's on board. The head of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin, has never voted for 702. And that's not a good situation if you're trying to get a bill out of the Judiciary Committee. Okay, Gus, I've asked you to hold for a little while, even though we've got a bunch of really interesting antitrust issues. So now we're going to dive into them. The Google case, I'm really interested in what what's going on there. And I can't tell. Uh, it's really interesting. I, I think the Google decision to scream about all of its confidential information has booked the judge into closing massive amounts of the hearings, closing off big chunks of the the filings. And so it's actually kind of hard for the public to know what kind of arguments are being made. Yeah. So uh, we can spend as little or as much time talking about the Google case and antitrust stuff going on right now as you would like, Stuart. And when I say as much, if you want to talk for three days, we could, but we probably yep. have closer to three minutes. Um, yep, so uh, we, right. 
because there's no news and we can't do an informed judgment about how the Justice <laughs> Department is doing because we can't see what they're saying. Yeah. So we're, we're going into the third week of the Google trial and you're referring to a specific incident and actually a, a couple of things going on in the trial last week. So we had this situation where the judge learned that the Department of Justice was putting all of their exhibits publicly up on the DOJ website site, basically in real time as they were using them in a trial. And Google didn't like that and complained about it to the judge. And I think that the judge was rightfully a little surprised that the DOJ was giving so much immediate publicity to everything going on and said, stop doing that. And a lot of the trial is now behind closed doors, or it's at least closed off in a way that it wasn't before. And we we had been getting a lot of visibility into uh, the day-to-day goings-on with the trial. And I, I think that is stopping now as of this week. So we're operating in a bit more of a void. And it, it is interesting. I've seen several pieces commenting on comparing the coverage of the Google trial, this trial, to the Microsoft trial back 25 years ago, where there really was wall-to-wall coverage in the press about that trial. It was a trial of the century sort of deal. And the Google trial, it's definitely in the mainstream press, but not in the same several reporters on the beat giving us down to the comment, down to the witness uh, questions. It was actually brilliantly packaged for publicity by building everything around mocking and embarrassing Bill Gates. There was a theme to it that lots of people could resonate to, and I'm sure it it had an impact on the outcome. Yeah. And I I think one theme of the Google trial might be a lack of a theme, a lack of strong, coherent arguments or visions for what a remedy might be. Lots of it's, it's a weird case. It's a weird argument. I'll say my sympathies looking at the facts and the theories are certainly with Google, but I can see and sympathize with confusion about the underlying practices appearing to be monopolistic and concerning. And it's going to continue to be a fascinating trial to watch, but the outcome is going to be particularly interesting. And just to put some color on what the theory is that I'm talking about there, the basic issue in this case, as I think about it, is Google has been paying companies like Apple tens of billions of dollars a year. Apple in particular, supposedly about $10 billion a year to be the default search engine on the Apple web browser. And that sure feels like if Google is the best web browser out there and switching costs are really low, it's easy for consumers to switch. It sure feels like why in the world would Google spend so much money to be the default search engine? They're the best. Apple should want to just make them the default without paying anything. And it seems like, well, maybe Google is trying to prevent Bing from being the default. So there's a colorable feeling this is monopolization. But what if we go the other way? What if Google were to refuse to pay and say, Apple, we're not going to pay. We're the best. So Apple says, "Okay, we're going to take Microsoft's $8 billion and make them the default. And it turns out Google is the best. And all these users switch to Google from Microsoft. Microsoft says, why are we paying this much? They refuse to pay. And then Google gets all of the Apple users basically by default without paying anything. Well, that kind of feels like monopolization. So and you can imagine then Google says, hey, Apple, you need to pay us now for the privilege of using our service. So it kind of feels like there's a situation where if Google pays, they're a monopolist and this is monopolization. If Google doesn't pay, they're a monopolist and this is monopolization. And boy, oh boy. Right. Welcome to the modern economy. 
the argument is you're charging the monopoly price for your product by refusing to subsidize it. Yep. Yeah, I take the points. But before we thought that was just a catch-22. Now, since everybody hates Google, people are happy to read it against them both ways. So as my guests, uh, one quick question, where in this government theory does it fit that they started changing the prices that they charged for ads without telling people there was a big deal about that. And I thought, well, that does sound kind of sleazy, but I just don't understand where it comes into monopolization of the search. Yeah. So in testimony this week, a Google exec was questioned about emails and memos back from 2019. So this isn't necessarily current practice where the memos were discussing Google making adjustments to its ad prices in order to meet revenue targets, increasing ad prices without telling advertisers apparently by between 5 to 10% or so. And for any antitrust folks in the audience, huh, increase in prices by 5 to 10%. That, that's actually a magic number in antitrust land. We tend to use what's known as the SNP test, small but significant and non-transitory increase in price. If you can increase your prices by 5 to 10% is how we usually say it, without losing customers, that's an indicia of having market power. So those numbers are really interesting. Now, almost any company, if they need some short-term revenue and there's some stickiness with their consumers, if that test is non-transitory is really important, it needs to not go back down. If you need to juice your numbers to meet a revenue target or you need a quick influx of cash, you might increase your prices a bit. And yeah, over the next year or two, our customers might leave, but we can maybe get a bit more revenue there. But that's market power in a completely different market, isn't it? That has nothing to do with search. Right. Uh, so nothing to do with search, though, might go to demonstrating monopolization and market power. Though those aren't the market power issue isn't contested on the search side in this case. There's an even bigger thing, though, in this case, which is on the advertising side of the market. Google has been facing increasing competition in recent years, especially since 2019. Today, I think they have something like 30% of that market. Amazon has about that much market and it's increasing, whereas Google is shrinking. Facebook has more of the market. TikTok is uh, an increasing threat there. So even if this demonstrates some problematic practices in 2019, it's not going to be a current sort of practice. It, it actually, yeah. which tends to suggest that they didn't have market power in this segment back in 2019 either. If they tried yeah. to flex their muscle okay. this way and, hey, suddenly all their advertisers are considering alternatives. I'm going someplace else, yeah. Okay. All right. So that's not the only antitrust case kicking around. There's nothing but antitrust cases kicking around. So the FTC is getting ready to go after Amazon. The complaint, I gather, is drafted and has gone out to a bunch of states saying you want to join. So it does sound like it's really imminent. Do we know what's in it? Yeah. So we, we have some inklings of what's in it. So first, we should remind listeners, since this is a lot of stuff, a lot of cases, the Google case is the Department of Justice along with some states are bringing that. And the Amazon case, the FTC is getting ready to file reportedly. And then that's because Amazon has been Lena Khan's white whale ever since she was in law school. So she's not going to let the Justice Department bring that case. Indeed. And in fact, back over the summer, the Federal Trade Commission filed a consumer protection case 
against Amazon dealing with so-called dark patterns, how difficult the FTC alleges Amazon has made it to cancel Prime subscription. This is a separate case that they're getting ready to file, which will be primarily an antitrust case. There will probably be some consumer protection stuff mixed in there. But this is the big case. This is, folks say that the Google case is the antitrust trial of the uh, decades or since Microsoft. Well, the Amazon case is comparably large. So what's likely to be in there? A few things are being reported. The first is Amazon's pushing dot, 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 its merchants to use Amazon's fulfillment services. So their warehouse services, their logistics services, their delivery services. So that's the first issue. And there's a lot of interesting comparative stuff between practices in the United States and the European Union, where there were some similar concerns, especially with allowing the terms on which sellers might be allowed to be prime sellers, but handle their own delivery or provision their own delivery. So that's the, the first issue. Prime subscriptions, practices relating to prime subscriptions is a, another issue. A lot there is going to depend on what's actually in the complaint. The other third one is uh, price parity rules. So Amazon, like many retailers, has a requirement that their sellers not have lower prices on other platforms because Amazon wants to be able to say lowest price guaranteed. You come here and you can buy this widget from this seller you, and you're going to get the uh, same or better price that you would get from walmart.com or going actually to Walmart. And you'll, you'll note the way I phrase that. Many other sellers have the same sort of provision. Right. But since Amazon is so large, the argument is that this is a flex of their monopolistic muscles. Okay. Frankly, none of that sounds to me as though it is as big as the Microsoft case, but maybe it could produce a remedy that would be a shot in Seattle. And that's the issue really with both of these cases. What would the remedy be? Going back to the Google case, the Department of Justice actually hasn't really told a judge what remedy they would seek. If they win, they've said, you know, Your Honor, let, let's push that off to the uh, remedy phase of the trial after we've already won. The cynic or the wise man would say, maybe that's because they don't have a good remedy in mind. And if they were to tell the judge that, the judge would be less likely to let them win. In the uh, case of Amazon, it's very likely that the FTC wants a structural remedy. They want to cleave off portions of Amazon's business, require some actual divestitures, breaking up big Amazon. And it, it's hard. I mean, you said, Stuart, that there's skepticism about Google today. They're no longer America's favorite corporation. That might be true. That's not the case with Amazon. People still love Amazon. Yeah. And yeah. this seems like a stupid case to really be litigating, both because it's a pretty weak antitrust case and also because if you win, consumers are going to hate what the government just did. Yeah, I think that's right. If they wanted to be more popular on the right, they would make a big deal out of Amazon refusing to sell certain books. If Amazon will carry your book, you're dead because they think it's not politically correct or changing your book after you bought it to be more left-leaning friendly. Those are the kinds of things that are an exercise of market power, after all. I just don't think the FTC has the political gumption to, to make a big deal out of that. 
Mm-hmm. And one last thing that I'll just briefly mention about the FTC, and you, you mentioned Amazon is Chair Khan's white whale at the FTC. The FTC just made a remarkable decision last week to name three executives personally in the dark patterns suit. So they've never done that before? They have done that before. They will occasionally name executives individually, but it is almost only, it's almost exclusively limited to situations where remedies otherwise aren't available or the individual is the alter personality of the business. Not where these are executives who are executiving in the organization. That's interesting. So it's pretty clear, you know, they recently brought a case for enforcement of the past consent order where they named the CEO and that was meant to send the signal that they were going to find the CEO. And so it may be that this is part of their effort to say, we want to show how tough we are. We want to scare people. And if corporate liability doesn't scare them, maybe personal liability will. To do that in the context of a company that you've had a grudge against in law school, to do it for the first time there is pretty awkward. Yeah, uh, it, it's a it's intended to be a signal to individual executives, but it's coming off as personal and petty and really pretty abusive of the FTC's authority. Okay. All right, Mark, you've been very patient. The UK is doing something that combines competition law and artificial intelligence regulation. But as with a lot of the UK work on AI, it really seems more like a sketch than a completed piece of work. That's a good summary. But the context is that earlier this year, the UK released this white paper on AI, and it took what I thought was a very sensible approach. It it said, all of you regulators, you deal with the challenges of AI within your area of jurisdiction and expertise. And it said, we don't want to have a new AI regulator to regulate the technology as, as such. And, you know, that's sort of what the U.S. position has been for yep. for at least the administrations. Our, our favorite regulator, Lena Khan, sort of summarized that with the phrase, the pithy phrase, no AI exemption from current laws. So it's up to the regulator to figure out how to take into account this new technology. So this week, the Competition and Market Authority says, here's a report on how we intend to approach this. And it's not a decision about any particular use of AI or any particular company's involvement in AI, it starts with a pretty nice outline of what they call the market for foundation models, where you've got developers using large amounts of data and compute power to develop these general purpose models. And then they they can be further trained for specific purposes. And it says, look, some companies take these foundation models and make them open source so that they can be further used by other developers. And some companies keep the code secret and they only allow people to get access to the product through APIs. And if there's a one message, I think, from the entire report, it's a little bit of a suggestion that if you're concerned about competition issues and concentration in this market for foundation models, you have to be pretty supportive of the open source model. And so for those people in the AI world who are saying, what we really need is licensing, 
which is sort of hostile toward the open source approach, this is a shot across their bow. Yeah, I actually think it's more than sort of. It's actually an argument for maybe why you do want an AI regulator who can balance the importance of having competition and opening up the AI to innovation by more than a two and a half companies versus the people who say, if you make it open source, every bad thing that can be done with AI will be done in the next decade. Yeah. And I think the answer from the point of view of people who are pushing the sector specific approach is if you've got a problem with, say, disinformation and AI, the problem isn't AI. It's you haven't developed an adequate regulatory structure for disinformation. Or if the problem is AI and consumer protection, the problem isn't AI. It's you got to have better enforcement of your consumer protection laws. If your problem is AI and discrimination or bias, the problem isn't AI. It's get a better handle on the fair lending laws and the fair housing laws and the non-discrimination in employment laws. And so that's the way they tend to handle that kind of stuff. These more existential problems about AI spinning out of control and becoming autonomous and doing all these horrible things, that's where you get into this licensing regime and you say these things are not safe. And so we have to restrict them to just a few specially designated providers. And we can't let the stuff out to the rest of the world through open source. I think the CMA is on the side of people who say that would be a mistake. Yep. So it is interesting. You're right. It's just a sketch, but it's a sketch with potentially big consequences. Yeah. I mean, they have seven principles that they sketch out, but they're so general, they don't really tell anybody uh, what the agency would be doing in any particular case. And it doesn't really provide guidance for, for companies, but it's hard to be against them. I mean, accountability, right. yeah, somebody should be accountable and so on. That's all good stuff, but it doesn't give you any real handle on, on what behavior is appropriate and what's not. Okay. And I got two or three stories just to update people on stuff we've covered in the past. The case about whether the government can be enjoined from leaning on social media to ban people and suppress certain speech continues to move around the uh, courts and the Supreme Court has issued a stay and is considering whether to grant certiorari in an appeal of a preliminary injunction. And everybody may wait and see a what kind of injunction actually comes out of this, but there is clearly a lot going on. And it, it's interesting that all the judges that have ruled have thought that some kind of injunction made sense. And yet uh, everybody has also granted stays, which usually indicates some uncertainty about what the right answer is. So will stays, Supreme Court will take this case soon uh, and make a decision about whether they're, whether they're actually going to hear argument on this. They might. I would have thought they'd want to wait for a, a factual record to be further developed, but maybe not. And the uh, Solicitor General is really gutting from the whole decision. I put this in here in part just so I can say I've done a new Cybertunes commentary on this, which I have to say I'm starting to regret the graphics, but not because they're offensive, but just because they, they don't quite communicate. But if you want to see it, it's Ethavolic conspiracy already up today. And the, um, the UK has declared that the US data protection regime is adequate. No surprise there. They were always going to accept whatever the EU accepted, and they couldn't accept anything the EU couldn't accept. So they are really just a sidecar to the data privacy framework negotiations the US had. And 
too bad for the US. They would rather have had the UK inside lobbying for them, but now they just have them as a Me Too applicant to send data across the Atlantic. And although there was a lot of evidence that the new phone from Huawei was really a major advance in what the Chinese can do in this area, the official position from the Commerce Department is we don't think that the Chinese can build those advanced chips at scale. We'll see if what they're talking about is chips that are going into the sexiest new Huawei phone. We're going to find out very soon. I worry a little that the Commerce Department doesn't want to say that they're as good as they are because that would be embarrassing for the Biden administration. And so they'd rather say, no, no, we haven't lost. What we did wasn't useless. And then if in a year it turns out it was useless, they expect people have forgotten how hard they work to make it work. So we'll see. But right now there is some debate about whether the Huawei advancements and the seven nanometer technology that they are touting is as real as a lot of people thought. All right, that is it. Gus, Mark, and David, thank you for joining us. If you've got comments from the listeners, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com will get them to me or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been episode 473 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. confident that the people who are advertising to me know my age, judging from the depends as <laughs> I get. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>